The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this hour. The uh, numbers through from Standard Chartered this morning. Shares gaining in Hong Kong after the lender posted a 28% jump in full-year pre-tax profit, while the bank announced a new $1 billion share buyback program. Bill Winters is sitting next to me. We will talk with him in just a moment. Cool your heels. Uh, U.S. retail sales rebound surging to their biggest monthly gain in over almost two years as consumers brush aside cost concerns, piling pressure on the Fed to keep interest rates higher for longer. Airbus beats expectations with a 16% rise in full-year operating profit, but the plane maker is conservative with it delivering targets, forecasting numbers in line with last year. Tesla agrees to open up its U.S. charging network to other vehicles as part of President Biden's green federal funding package. While Berkshire Hathaway's Charlie Munger tells CNBC, Chinese EV maker BYD is among his best ever trades. BYD is so much ahead of Tesla in China, it's like a, it's just, it's almost ridiculous. So welcome back, everybody. Uh, let's just um, do the read very quickly. I think you've got it all in the headlines. But a reminder, Standard Chartered then reporting a 28% rise in annual profit before tax. The lender announced a new share buyback of $1 billion after upgrading key performance forecasts for the year, including a return on tangible equity target approaching 10% for 2023. A real treat for you all this morning. Not only is Karen Cho back from her... Uh, ski slope adventures. Yes, all intact, limbs where they should be. Welcome. Well, that's always a positive, isn't it, after <laughs> exactly. a ski trip? And Bill Winters is with us. Good morning, Bill. Nice to see you. Great to be here. Thanks for having uh, me. Bill is the CEO, of course, of Standard Chartered. So, so just walk us through the quarter, um, in your own words, how good or bad did you feel about the numbers you've delivered? I think it's obviously been a bumpy road coming out of COVID, but it's uh, we've had made really good, strong, steady progress. So we had good growth in the year, uh, up 15%. We managed to keep our costs under control. Uh, the credit impairments ticked up a bit, but are still uh, somewhat below what we would expect to be normal uh, through, a, through an economic cycle. And uh, that has allowed us to, to post some really good profit growth and, uh, and announce a return of a billion dollars to shareholders via buybacks, in addition to a very healthy dividend increase. And in terms of the outlook for 2023, also sounds um, generally positive. Yeah. And I know the macro economists at the moment are tying themselves in knots trying to figure out what is going on post-COVID with the uh, rebound in spending that we saw in the retail sales numbers in the States overnight, but still concerns that we're only going to scrape by recession this year. Yeah, the, the, the recession outlook does look a bit tough in the West. I'll say and, and for the, the, the markets where, where we do the bulk of our business, Asia, Africa, the Middle East, are looking pretty good. So uh, we're expecting China to grow 5.8% this year, obviously coming back from quite a difficult COVID period. Hong Kong is back to life. Uh, the rest of ASEAN is doing quite well. India is, is relatively booming. So when you look at the, at the markets where we operate, it, it feels quite different than, uh, than it does if you're sitting here in, in London or the U.S. 
That said, uh, the U.S. economy has been super resilient, and we're, we've seen a nice little bounce in, in January. That's a good thing for economic activity, probably not such a good thing for, uh, for inflation, uh, which means that central banks will have to be vigilant for a little bit longer. Uh, but on balance, that's, uh, that's uh, all a very good thing for our business. Bill, I'm just going to slide off paste a little bit here and take you away from earnings because there was so much noise coming up to this result around first Abu Dhabi Bank, whether they're interested, whether exploring a second act for your bank. And I know you've already uh, shot down some of the comments here around whether the interest is genuine or not, but just walk us through where you're at. Well, we've had no engagement with, with any prospective bidders, uh, aren't seeking any engagement with any prospective bidders and don't need to. So our, our business is growing really nicely uh, independently. We've obviously upgraded our, our outlook for 2023 and 2024, which, uh, and we've, we've gone beyond that to say that we expect to continue to improve our returns after that. You know, the most encouraging thing to me uh, over the past year is, uh, of course, we got a benefit from higher interest rates, which, which I think most banks or maybe all banks did. Uh, but over half of our growth, very strong growth, came from things other than interest rates. So it's all the other parts of our strategy that are working well. It's against that backdrop that we look and say, look, We've got the right strategy. We've got, we're on the right track. The economic environment in which we operate feels very good. And overall, that sounds like we should just keep on going full speed ahead, keep our heads down, don't get distracted by, by stories that come up uh, one side or the other. And that's what we're doing. That's that the market is trying to attach some form of a takeover premium. I, I question what that premium should be. We were looking at some of your comments from the last several months about it being a complex beast as we take a look at Standard Chartered. And, and it's true. I mean, we think about the deep operations you have in parts of Hong Kong, around Southeast Asia, and what this means in terms of security and sovereignty, uh, how financial markets operate smoothly. You're part of that journey. How would you describe the complexity of your company and why it would be difficult for another competitor to take over your bank? I think that the challenging thing with any bank these days is regulation. And, and regulation, as we know, following the, the financial crisis, has gone very local. Uh, so each country operation has its own regulator, and those regulators are now very strong in their own right. They weren't as focused on the local business before. Uh, which means anybody that wants to do anything strategic, if we want to do anything uh, strategic with uh, buying something or, uh, or merging a division or whatever, we need the approval of every affected regulator. And regulators don't seem to be so inclined to, to allow that kind of combination these days because they're focused on what's it going to do for me back at home. So it's not to say nothing could ever be done. Uh, we just have to recognize that, that given the, the breadth of our activities across 60 markets in the world, that's a lot of regulators you have to get on site. Yeah, I mean, you know this industry very well. What, what, what do you think happened here? Because the, the level of detail was extraordinary. I mean, apparently this project was called Silver Foxtrot, which almost sounds like a reference to a man of a certain age, doesn't it? Right? How do you like that? But, 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 you know, Silver Foxtrot was the plan. It was being worked on by a team of... And so on and so on and so forth. And, and the story had so much detail that I think the market bought it. What do you think was happening here? Was, was somebody out there trying to push standard chart, chart, chartered stock up? Well, Jeff, was there I, a play going on? I have no idea. And, and, and I, dare I say, I don't particularly care. We're completely focused on the mission at hand. And the mission at hand is to continue to grow our income, to do it with expenses under control, to have our risk-weighted assets so that measure of capital grow a little bit slower than, than our overall assets, uh, return capital to shareholders and continue to invest in our business. That's what we've said we've been doing for the past four years. That's what we're doing and it's working. Obviously you have a responsibility to the owners, the shareholders at this point. If somebody turned up with the right amount of mm -hmm. money, you'd have to look at that. Um, I mean, can you tell us, is Standard Chartered for sale? Absolutely not. But as I said to you, Jeff, uh, not, not too long ago, uh, on the right terms, somebody wants to come and, and thinks that they can do something, 
I would encourage engagement rather than, than uh, whatever this is, speculation through the press, if anything's happening at all. But that's just not what we're focused on at all. But of course we have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders. And if somebody wants to come and, and uh, thinks that they can add a lot of value, as, as I've said, be my guest. You mentioned regulators a moment ago. Does that stretch to full-blown concerns about the ownership of a bank these days? I mean, we've seen it through the lens of Switzerland where you've got uh, Saudi money coming in, Gulf money coming in. There are question marks by some investors as to whether that ownership structure is right for such a, a big Swiss institution. When it comes to Standard Chartered, are those same concerns an issue? Uh, I, I don't think it's, it's, uh, it's a top-line issue, uh, but I think, uh, and, I, and I can't speak for regulators, but I would expect that, that any regulator would, would look at, at a bank and say, is this bank safe and sound? Uh, and obviously that starts with really important things like capital and, and liquidity. Do, do you have all the, all the financial metrics? But it would also be, is, is governance right? Uh, and uh, of course, we're a UK PLC. We have extraordinary governance you know, with a very strong board of directors. It's very diverse coming from, from different parts of the world and a whole governance arrangement uh, below that. Uh, ultimately, ultimately, there's accountability to shareholders. But uh, so I, I think ownership, of, uh, ownership short of control, I don't think would be a primary consideration, but uh, you know, it could on the margin, I suppose. Now, I do have an earnings question for you, if I can Sounds come good. back to that. <laughs> I want to ask you about the loan loss rate. Uh, you've yeah. said that it remains well below historic range. Yeah. We haven't seen a lot of banks putting a load of provisioning up front at this stage because we're going into some sort of down cycle. Yeah. I think we've got one or two of them here for the European banks. What are you seeing at this point, given that, you know, we've had a surprise in the data, some of it suggesting, well, higher for longer, or at least Fed yeah. funds rate suggesting that the market might have been slightly wrong-footed on that? I think that the big difference uh, between this credit cycle and earlier credit cycles that I've seen, and I've seen quite a few through the years, that one, the banking system is probably the strongest it's ever been, dare I say in history, but certainly for a very, very long time. And of course, that's the reaction to the financial crisis and all the regulatory changes. And, and it's not just the regulators that forced banks to increase their capital, it was the market. Uh, so banks are very strong and corporate balance sheets are in very good shape. And certainly in our markets, consumer balance sheets are in good shape. So. Uh, there's something that's in not so good shape, which is the developed country government balance sheets, which are, which are quite stretched right now. Uh, but th that's, that's been manageable so far, and that's not where our big exposures are. But with a with strong banking system, strong corporate and consumer balance sheets, it's not surprising that, that the actual loan losses are on the low side. Uh, but as you point out, interest rates have gone up. There will be some stresses. Thankfully, it's coming at a time when economic activity is quite strong. So. Uh, we think we're very well provided for the risk exposures that we've identified. Both, both those risks that are, are real, I, we've noted a, a company is, is in some sort of distress, we've provided for it, uh, but also the way that, that we're modeling provisions now for, uh, there's an increase in your expected losses that come from higher interest rates, and that's, that's all baked in the numbers now. So I, I feel like we're in pretty good shape. You're a bit closer to the Chinese market than uh, a lot of other banking CEOs in Europe. Um, what do you think is going to happen next here? Because you have some Chinese property loan exposure. Sure. Yep. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how that is performing, but also just flesh out for us what the PBOC is doing and how it's going to change the growth dynamic for China. Yeah, China obviously has gotten the big fill-up of, of the, the, the quick release from COVID. And, and while that, that period was, was, was shocking, I think, for, uh, for, for the market and for people in China, it had the benefit of being very fast. And, and we're clearly on, on at the back end of that right now. Uh, so economic activity is picking up quite nicely. At a consumer level, there, there's pent-up consumer demand. It's going. Uh, at a corporate level, uh, reactivating the supply chain bottlenecks that were really holding things back have uh, pretty much all relaxed at this point. 
So that feels good. Uh, it's obviously coming against the backdrop of possibly slower growth in the US and almost certainly slower growth in Europe. Although, as you pointed out, maybe avoiding recession. Uh, th th that's something of a Goldilocks uh, situation for, uh, for China. Uh, as you mentioned, the, the commercial real estate sector has been very hard hit. And, and we've taken our, uh, our share of pain in that sector, having taken some provisions over the course of 2022. But obviously, very manageable in the overall context of our very, very strong results. Uh, but it feels like that real estate market is, is probably bifurcating a bit between uh, those companies that, uh, that, were, that were weaker and that were forced to go into a restructuring process. They're having a hard time coming out of that. Uh, and that's where we've taken the provisions. Uh, and then there's the, 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 the rest of the market, which is the bulk, and that's the bulk of our exposure, uh, which is benefiting from loosening or, or, or less restrictive policies on, uh, on commercial real estate. And it looks like they have a, a very strong chance of recovery. But you know, you know the real estate market, it's a confidence thing. And right now, confidence in Chinese commercial real estate, including from the home buyers in China, has not yet recovered. So unit sales are still weak, uh, prices are still drifting a little bit lower, and uh, not, not severely. So it's gonna take a while for, for confidence to form and for that sector to rebound. But we think the bulk of it will do, will do fine. But there, there have been some losses, and we think there will be some more losses. Thankfully, we're provided against all of that. Bill, there's some complexity across the business, as you've described, but when it comes to the, the payout for shareholders, it still looks like a very solid point in time. What, 14 cents per share on the final dividend, $1 billion share buyback. Is this the sweet spot? We've got the net interest income rising at this point in the cycle. You've got uh, a little bit of provisioning, a few issues around China. Is this as good as it gets when it comes to the cash payout for shareholders? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, what, what we've indicated is uh, that we can get our, our this measure of, of interest rate margin, it's called the net interest, not net interest margin, uh, up from uh, 160 basis points or so this year, up to 180 basis points next year. This, this was bottomed out at 119 basis points with, with zero interest rate policy. So that's uh, still healthy growth in, in interest income. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, our, the majority of our growth, roughly half-half, is coming from non-interest income. So our wealth management business, which was hit quite hard last year as a result of weaker equity and debt markets, investors just stayed on the sidelines, uh, they're coming back in. January is off to a, a start that suggests that they're re-engaging with markets. Uh, the, uh, of course, we get the, the, the ongoing benefit from interest rates, but I look at wealth management, our financial markets business has been extremely strong. Uh, we had two record years. Don't think we can continue to grow at that pace, but there's definitely growth left in, in that part of our business. Trade is picking up again, uh, which is encouraging. If the global economy stays on track, which we think it will, that those trade flows will be good. So there's plenty of opportunities for us to continue to grow our earnings, which is why we're saying we can get to an 11% plus return on tangible equity in 2024, up from approaching 10% this year in 2023. And, uh, and then we can continue to grow from there. And obviously as earnings grow, we'd expect uh, dividends to grow as well. When does the higher cost of money though begin to really bite, do you think? Because we all understand the cycle. I think we're all just a bit bemused that the markets are behaving as well as they have done. I mean, you must see it in the potential for loan growth, both in uh, uh, personal consumer loans and corporate loans at this stage. The central banks continue to argue that rates only go up from here. When do we see a tangible slowdown in that activity? So we've seen some already. Uh, we, had a, a, we had a real weakness in the mortgage market, in, in particular in, in, uh, in places like, uh, like Hong Kong and the rest of, of Asia last year. Uh, obviously, you're seeing that in other markets. Mortgages are very interest rate sensitive. So mm. that, uh, that slowdown, uh, we've seen some uh, slowdown, well, we've seen quite a slowdown in the whole leverage finance area, so leverage buyouts and those things. Uh, probably more to do with the, with the fact that uh, the, the general uh, financial market volatility than interest rates per se, but of course that puts a damper on things. 
Uh, the good news for that industry is that equity prices have come down as well, so things are a little bit more affordable. So I think you know, largely the interest rate increase and the interest rate outlook has found its way into equity prices, and uh, the market is re-equilibrating around this level, and we'll begin to grow from here. Uh, but but we're, of course we're seeing we're seeing the impact at, at a at a personal consumer level, mortgages in particular. But it's Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Manageable. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Nestle. Just having a quick look at the numbers already, it seems like they're close, but just slightly underwhelming versus expectations. The four-year revenue, 94.4 billion versus an estimate of 94.8 billion Swissy. Organic growth, 8.3%. Free cash flow, 6.6 billion is uh, the line here. Four-year adjusted EPS at 4.8 Swissy versus an estimate of 4.77. When it comes to the sales print, though, uh, 94.4 billion Swissy versus 95.1 billion seen in consensus analyst forecasts. So that number slightly under the uh, 2022 organic growth number of 8.3% that was versus 8.6% forecast by analysts as well. So uh, slightly under on that. In terms of pricing, that increased by 8.2%, real internal growth uh, by 0.1 of a percent. Underlying operating profit, 17.1% for the year. In terms of uh, what we're seeing uh, across on some of the guidance here, Nestle has guided for organic growth of 6 to 8% in 2023. Underlying trading operating profit margin of 17 to 17.5%. It's proposed a 2022 dividend of 2.95 Swissy per share and um, key lines there. So let's get out to Juliana for more to break down the numbers. Juliana, as I mentioned, the consensus forecast was out there, but we've had the numbers just come slightly under on the sales print, but also on the profit line. Karen, good morning. And interesting to see that the numbers have come in slightly below consensus. They did come in broadly in line with what the company guided the last time they communicated with the market. Uh, Full year organic growth of 8.3% and margin broadly in line with their guidance as well, 17.1%. That does mark a step down of about 30 basis points due in large part to significant cost inflation. Um, When it comes to the breakdown between pricing and volume, definitely worth spending a moment to think about the fact that this is all almost entirely pricing, 8.2% pricing. But as you mentioned, volumes were positive, 0.1%. It's not much. But as we look to 2023, the Nestle story, the broader food sector story is all about volume elasticity. To what extent volumes react to pricing as companies try to push through uh, their higher cost inflation on to customers in the form of higher pricing. When it comes to that 2023 outlook, their focus for Nestle is on restoring margins. They're looking at 6 to 8% organic growth growth and 17 to 17.5% margin. And then looking beyond 2023, today Nestle has uh, completely confirmed their 2025 targets and they are looking at um, more material margin growth and restoring their margins in a more meaningful way, 175 to 18.5% margin range for those outer years. Now breaking it down in terms of region and product for the 2022 year, um, 
a couple of interesting points on the regional front. In North America, huge pricing, 11.6%. But we did see a pullback in volumes, 1.3%. Margins, however, stepped up by about 70 basis points to 21%. So huge pricing in North America. In Europe, a little bit more muted. Pricing was uh, 6.4%. Volume still positive, 0.9%. But putting it all together, margins in Europe came down by about 190 basis points to 16.4%. And finally, from product perspective, two big growth areas for Nestle have been pet care and coffee. Pet care, Purina Pet Care, I think you guys are probably familiar in the studio with lots of pets at home. It was the largest contributor to organic growth last year. Nespresso, which was huge during COVID, saw a bit of a pullback. Volumes uh, down 1.7% as they pushed through some pricing, but altogether margins did come down in Nespresso, and they chalk it up to strong comps because of the surge they saw in coffee and at-home Nespresso during the pandemic. But as I said, looking ahead for Nestle and the broader food sector, it is all about that volume elasticity. So it'll be interesting when we speak later to the CEO of Nestle, Mark Schneider, about how he's thinking about managing pricing versus volumes versus promotional activity and how they're going to navigate the environment in the coming months. Thank you very much, that Juliana. Dutch financial services company NN Group has reported four-year operating capital generation of up 8% on the year to 1.7 billion euros, although new business value dipped to 177 million euros in the second half. David Knibber joins us, the CEO of NN Group. David, thank you very much for joining us. Just run us through the quarter that you've had. Yes, good morning, uh, everybody. Well, we had a very good, uh, good half year. Uh, on, on a full year basis, our operating capital generation, which is our main metric, went up with, uh, with 8%. On the full year also, our new business went, uh, went up at 431 million uh, uh, for the full year. Uh, so commercial resilience was also strong. Uh, we saw net inflow in our, in our pension business. So all in all, it was a, uh, was a strong year. Our solvency ended up at 197, which then also enabled us to uh, offer a, uh, a dividend. Um, so an increase of dividend uh, per share of 12%. And we announced a, a share buyback of uh, 250 million. So all in all, a, a strong year for us. Um. So there are a couple of items here that are worth just pulling out. The negative uh, numbers, are the negative real estate revaluations, but also some impairment charges. To what extent will some of this roll on to the next half? Right. So in the net result, we've seen some some impairments. Uh, obviously, financial markets have been uh, been very um, volatile. Uh, for the full year, the net result was was 1.6 billion uh, positive. Uh, but again, the the main metric we're steering on is operating capital generation. I think for going forward, there's probably you know clearly markets will remain uh, will remain volatile. We might see some more impairments in uh, in real estate. But there is also uh, I think offsetting good news. I think for example, the bank we see uh, the net interest rate margin we expect to further improve with attractive mortgage rates and, and savings rates going up a bit. Uh, the non-life business we expect some growth and also European business with the new business growth. So, so all in all uh, we have set a target of 1.8 billion capital generation going forward uh, for 2025 and we're well on track to deliver that and but I'm sure there will be some volatility in the financial markets along the way. Yeah. Well David um, congratulations on being reappointed by the board as well. We should mention that in passing um, so it is a red letter day for you as you talk about the earnings. But on that new business, it's very interesting. Insurance companies can always write new business. The question is, can you write it profitably and can you write it with better margin than the business you've written before? How does it look given that inflation, no doubt, is having some impact? 
Right. No, indeed, that's a very good question. And that's why we also uh, report in what we call value new business. So this is really a margin metric and not a, uh, a, a volume metric. Um, so clearly, you know, when rates go up, the discounting rate goes up and that, that puts a bit of pressure uh, in the short term on the margin of, uh, of the products. There's currency effects. But all in all, what we see is we are very active in the protection space and, and life protection. We see a strong underlying need. We've been talking for a long time about there's an underpenetration, but COVID has also made clear that people, when they were, they were sitting at home and they were wondering what will happen to me, what will happen to my family if I get sick or something else uh, happens. So we've seen an increased awareness in the need for protection products. And protection products tend to have a, a good margin. So overall, we continue to see good margins also uh, going forward, despite that, obviously, with inflation, consumers are facing uh, you know, some, some purchasing power pressure. But the underlying need for, for protection is, is strong, and therefore we're convinced that we can continue to write attractive new business also going forward. And it's actually one of the main drivers of the, the growth in operating capital generation that we project for the coming years. Yeah, and obviously the, the, the Dutch life business, as I think you're alluding to, is a, is a strong engine for the group as a whole. But can you tell us a little bit about some of the international operations, just to give us a fuller picture on how the business is doing outside of the Netherlands? Right. Yeah, so in the European businesses, uh, as I was saying, hey, the, the main focus is on growing the protection business. We have a very strong multi-distribution uh, uh, platform. Um, for example, the banks that we cooperate with, we have seen that they've been selling less mortgages, less loans, and, and we sell credit insurance. So there we've seen that actually the, uh, the sales went down. But I think the advantage of a, a multi-distribution platform is also that at the same time we see the tight agents where we're really uh, making significant investments in, in further digitalizing it, leads-driven uh, type of agent channel. We've seen a very strong increase. So the, the agents were in a way able to offset some of the, the lower sales that we've seen from, from banking. And, and I think that's also the advantage that you have when you have a multi-distribution platform that the channels will, will move differently over time. But overall, we see a strong uh, development. Uh, we set a target for the European business 450 million operating capital generation in, in 2025. And that shows also that we are very convinced that uh, the European businesses will, uh, will grow. Uh, our Japan business also uh, had a very good year in terms of uh, value new business. Um, so in, in constant currency, the, the value new business was around uh, flat, um, uh, which is very good in such a challenging, uh, challenging year. For next year, we do expect some pressure there. Uh, we're in a transition offering more protection products and more long-term savings products. So I think for the short term, we could see some pressure on sales in, uh, uh, in Japan. Uh, but also there, we set a target of 125 million in, in 2025, and we're well on track also for the, for the Japanese business to, uh, to deliver that. David, there's been a big debate in markets around what type of landing we're going to have given what central banks are doing to try to take demand out of the system. Just looking at some of your commentary today first around the slowdown and the Dutch housing market, you know, we piece this together with some of the information we've had as we've kicked off 2023 that there was the first drop in house prices uh, in Dutch house prices in about nine years. What type of slowdown do you think we're going to see in the housing market there? You know, how sharp there's a reversal when it's been such a strong ride to the upside for so many years? 
Right. Well, clearly, I mean, we've seen in the uh, in the Dutch housing market, also during COVID, we've seen very significant uh, uh, increases of house prices. And, um, you know, at that point, we still had low interest rates. So also the mortgage market was, was very active because we had refinancing and we had a lot of transactions. Um, the expectation now is that we'll see a further slowdown of the number of transactions. So the refinancing, uh, you know, has really slowed down because obviously interest rates have, have gone up. So it's less attractive to refinance your, your mortgage. And the number of transactions is also expected to go down. Simply, there's not a lot of houses around uh, in the Dutch market. There's still a relatively shortage of, of houses. Now, the, the shortage of houses also supports a bit the, uh, the, the pricing of houses, but we do expect that uh, house prices will go down uh, uh, a bit further. Uh, but keep in mind that, it, you know, in the last few years, they've also went significantly up. So uh, the trend is probably a bit uh, downward. In terms of quality of the, of the mortgages, this is not a concern. I mean, the, the loan-to-value of our book is 55%, so uh, there's very strict underwriting. So from the mortgage market perspective, this is not something we're concerned around. But we do expect some uh, further decrease of house prices in the, uh, in the coming year. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.